And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another live edition of the Metrospective Podcast, a special early week live show uh, because I am, I should say, I'm Ted Berg. I'm joined, as usual, by one of the Athletics Mets beat writers, Tim Britton, and now, for the first time, uh, by the Athletics' new Mets beat writer, Will Salmon. Tim, hello. Hey, Ted. Will, uh, welcome aboard. Hey, Ted. Thank you. Uh, so, so uh, we, we're just to come in and join us on stage. We are speaking on, for those not joining us live, we're speaking on Tuesday in the early afternoon. The Mets won 4-1 over the Braves behind a great start from Max Scherzer on Monday night. Some uh, firepower from Pete Alonso and a home run from Luis Guillorme, who's heating back up, which is nice to see. But uh, I suspect a lot of our, our new listeners are interested to hear, or not, I'm sorry, a lot of our regular listeners are likely interested to hear from uh, our our new Mets beat writer, Will Salmon. Will, first of all, uh, so our, I guess to, to get one concern some people had out of the way, are you squeezing Tim off of the Mets beat here? <laughs> I, I, I sure as heck hope not. <laughs> that, that, that would not be this you know, trade not a trade season, and I don't think that would be a fair trade. I, I just don't. Well, I, I, I think yeah, you'd we'll rather see. have – I think you'd rather have um, some really thought-provoking literary quotes at the front <laughs> of your articles um, than just heading right into them with datelines and small paragraphs. It is, it is unfortunate for so many Mets fans that you are still stuck with me. I don't think that that's unfortunate. I think it's, it's going to be – I think it's going to be great to have presumably nearly twice as much coverage, perhaps more in-depth coverage of the Mets. And maybe, for me, like uh, a, um, a little more hopes that like, I, I can just ask you guys questions and you can go find out the answers. Specifically right now, what I'm, what I'm wondering a lot about and have been wondering a lot about that I have not found much about online is Trevor Williams' raven tattoo that takes up like his entire forearm. If one of you guys wants to get on that, that would be uh, very compelling t- content for me. You know, that's probably something that's more up my alley, I would think. <laughs> so, so Tim, I, have you, have you not? Like because, a targeted person. Because Trevor Williams seems like an interesting dude. Tim mentions he, he's into reading sci-fi and, and – uh, and I've got to know about this. This it's like a very distinctive looking uh, and sort of foreboding raven that takes up his whole arm. Um, so I, w- I want to know what the deal is with that. Uh, I have I have lots of questions. Uh, we have some some email questions uh, that I wanted to crack into too. Uh, I'll start with one from from Matt Anderson. It's presumably not the Matt Anderson who used to throw like 106 mile an hour into the backstop for the Tigers. Um, a different Matt Anderson, I assume. Uh, he wants to know, 
is this just anecdotal evidence I've incorrectly extrapolated? Or does Seth Lugo's stuff, particularly his curve, seem diminished post-sticky stuff crackdown? Uh, Will, I would love to throw this to you, but I, I'm assuming Tim is better suited for this one. Well, I would I would imagine so for for obvious reasons of uh, Seth Lugo not being a Brewers reliever uh, for the last three months. <laughs> right, you know, you didn't you haven't looked all that up in the last day since you started. Um, so I, I also have not looked up uh, the like spin rates on on Lugo's curveball. I mean, his, his, the spin rates are still. Uh, I, I yeah. believe they're still like right up there, elite, among, you know, if not the game's best, close to it. They are exactly where they have been for his, yeah. for most of his career. Like even actually a touch better this year than they were in his in his best seasons in 2018 and 2019. So I, I think you know if if you're trying to time it to the sticky stuff crackdown last June, uh, you're also timing it to like Seth Lugo's return from an offseason elbow surgery uh, earlier in the year. You know I, I think th- there's a couple different things that could be at work with with him just not looking the way he did when he was pitching out of the bullpen in 2018, 2019, and the start of 2020. One is that they tried him in the rotation at the end of 2020, and you don't know what that does to a guy ramping up in season the way that Lugo had to. And the second is that that offseason surgery, uh, I think it was to remove bone spurs uh, in his elbow. Uh, and we know that Lugo has the partially torn UCL that he's been pitching through for years uh, that, you know, he just doesn't seem quite as crisp and as consistently sharp uh, as a reliever as he had prior to the, those events happening. And I think they probably have a larger part in in causing that than anything with the sticky stuff. And yeah, also, I, I, I just want to say, I love the fact that uh, like Matt Anderson came along at a time when like anyone who threw a hundred miles an hour guaranteed that we would remember their name for the next quarter century. Uh, and right. now, there's, now there's 15 guys in every organization who do that. Like no one's going to be talking about Michelle Otanez 25 years from now, just because he threw a hundred, like he's going to have to do something else on top of that. But Matt Anderson, Joel Zamaya, we know these guys because of, what, of how hard they threw right off the bat. I mean, Matt, Matt Anderson got work like regular work with the Tigers, despite the fact that he was basically, I like, had like a one-to-one strikeout to walk <laughs> ratio. Like he, that, and I remember watching him like as a teenager and like the first time recognizing like the fear you must fear, you must feel in the batter's box as an opposing hitter. Cause that guy just, he threw the ball so hard and had absolutely no idea where it's going. Um, we have a question in the chat from John P who wants to know, do, um, it's, a, it's more questions about Lugo. I would say um, with Lugo and, uh, and will maybe this is more of a general statement. So maybe you do have insight onto this. I think that whatever you're seeing with Lugo is more likely confirmation bias than, than like an actual distinct specific difference between now and when he was a little bit better a few years ago, like he's, he just hasn't been as effective. And so it's not going to look as good. He's not going to, he's not going to feel as dominant when he comes into a game uh, because he's no, he hasn't been quite as good. He hasn't been horrible. He's just like, you know, a, a guy looks a certain way when he is, uh, is unhittable. Uh, I think it, it, it shows up in, in our heads and how we read them. And it also shows up in like how they walk around the mound and present themselves because uh, Lugo was a, like he was a great reliever in 2018, 2019. Now he is, but a pretty good one. Yeah. I think it's all relative to like what your expectations are and what they should be for somebody who's 32, 33 years old as a, as a reliever, who's been doing this for a few years, it's a historically volatile position. And this is a guy who is still pretty above average at, at the, at the, at the position. I mean, he's not, he does not have the, 
you know, uh, numbers that he did, like you said, Ted, where he has like an ERA plus over 150, uh, that those, those days are, are not there quite the same as they are now. Um, but he's still above average and he's still somebody that's helpful. Um, he's not maybe the guy that you're putting in there in the eighth inning. And I'm not sure if they have somebody that you're putting in there in the eighth inning that makes you feel excited about, um, these, that these three outs are going to come quick and easy. Um, and, and that they're going to be the perfect bridge, um, to uh, uh, an outstanding closer, but um, I'm not sure if they necessarily need that just yet from him either, if they could acquire that at the deadline. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Zach P is, is waiting to join us, but I'll, I will say to that point, like they, you're right. Like they don't have that guy for the eighth inning, but they also don't have this year, like a Guillermo Moda guy where you're like, Oh, absolutely. No way do I want this guy in the game. Like every, every guy they're going to bring in there is Okay. You know, they're all pretty good to, to good. They're not, they're not, there's no, there's no scrub. There's no guy who it's like, Oh, I, I absolutely don't trust this guy in this spot. I don't want him nowhere near this. Um, at times different guys have felt that way. Um, but if you look at the, at the whole, like the whole picture in the full season, bullpen's been good. I mean, we talk a lot about it, but it's, it's a good bullpen. Zach, uh, Zachary, what is going on? Thanks for the uh, Guillermo Moda PTSD test. I appreciate so that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, Will, welcome. I was at City Field for the first time this year, uh, this past weekend, um, on Sunday when they lost. And, of course, as I always do there, it's always fun to hear the new walk-up music. I was particularly struck by Pete using Rush, um, Mark Canna using MIA, so, Will, the question is to you and then, of course, to Ted and Tim. Uh, as a new beat writer here, Will, what would your walk-up music be? And part two of that question, who has the best walk-up music on the Mets? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's coming in hot. I probably will get into deep trouble with my girlfriend if I don't say Bad Bunny. Um, so I'm probably going to go with, like, 25-8 from him. Willie Adamas with the Brewers used that. It was, it's, it's, it's excellent. Um with the Mets, I, I really like, you know, I haven't been to too many. So I, I grew up in Queens, have some family there. So I've been to Queens and I've stopped by some games here and there. And I was, of course, there for the Brewers series a few weeks ago. But I haven't been to too many to really have, like, a great idea on, like, who's the best one um, or who, who do I like the most. I'm really inclined to go with Kiorme, though. I, I just I just yeah. love I just love where that noise comes on, man. I, I, something about it just, just – I, I know it's at that. It just stays with me. I like well, it. it's his name repeated many times. It's great. Yeah, it's the best. Yeah. Do you have a choice though? What, what, like, what would? What, oh, you said Bad Bunny. Uh, Tim, we, I think we've talked about this before. Well, first off, my goal is to get you, Ted, to start singing Carlos Beltran's old at bat music because I know you can. Esaki, Esaki, yeah. Um, I, I, I forget if we talked about this because I, I I break it into like what would be my at bat music versus what would be my reliever music. Totally uh, different thing. Yeah. I feel I feel better about the reliever choice, which is the Joker and the Thief by Wolf Mother. Um, and then I think for the at bat music, yeah, I haven't thought about this in a while, so it's it's my old pick, uh, which is just Bad Company by Bad Company, because uh, I just <laughs> like the idea of like the piano coming in at the start. Um, that is a uh... That's a terrible song, but go on. <laughs> I'm not saying uh, the the key to the at-bat music isn't that it's a good song. It's that it just has, <laughs> has it catches you at the start. Um, and then in terms of the Mets, uh, the current roster, I think uh, I like Canna's music the most. Yeah. He's got MIA uh, with Paper Planes most of the time. 
but he did. I, I thought it was it was very cool that uh, on Pride Night he mixed it up and used uh, a couple different LGBT related songs. You know, he had I think uh, Born This Way by Lady Gaga for one of his at bats. Uh, so I thought that was that was cool to just kind of mix it up on a a, night, a theme night and, and respond that way with your at bat music. I hadn't heard of a guy doing that before. Uh, did you notice that Joey, Joey Votto in the Red Series using the Dolly Parton song Jolene? I liked that. Yeah, it was really disappointing. He only played the first game. Um, that because uh, I liked the Jolene for the, for that, but then also like you know you don't get to see Joey Votto play a lot, and that he had he, he's been out I think since that really that first game of that series. Uh, it was too bad that uh, I know for Mets fans it was probably preferable to not have to face uh, the best hitter the Reds have had in the last forty years. Uh, but uh, it would have been nice as a fan of baseball to watch him like face Max Scherzer on Tuesday night. I think for 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 me like the the close, again like you said to a totally different animal closer music and at that music for closer music I've always said uh, Dr Dre's keep their heads ringing would be uh, would like, just I it's just like a it's like West Coast party jam that I think would be such a cool scene for coming to do a game the other thing as a closer that and I know we've talked about this Tim uh, I would also consider complete silence. And, and get, getting the entire, getting the whole crowd on board. Like everyone needs to know, like everybody shut up. Ted Berg is coming in. He throws 107 and like he is, he is lights out and just, and everybody just be quiet. And the only thing you're going to hear in the stadium is the sound of like me grunting and, and my insanely fast pass with fastballs popping gloves. Uh, for, for a hitter, I think that, like the song doesn't matter so much as it's like how recognizably yours it is, which is why, which is why I'm glad Will pointed out uh, Guillaume's. Um, so there's like, like I always, I come across it all the time. Like I'll come across like a section of a song where it's just like, this is, this is cool. Like there's a, uh, an Ozo Motley song called Super Bowl Sunday. And like right in the middle, there's just this, like this little breakdown part that I've always thought would be cool. Cause you wouldn't know the song. You would just know, like, oh, that's this guy's at bat music. Um, it involves a vibra slap, and and I, which is like, it makes the name noise. So I would like to, I would use that. I think um, the uh, the beginning of uh, the cake song "Love You Madly" is also like kind of a jam. Uh, one I would consider. There, these are like not uh, things you can pull up off the top of your head, and so I apologize for that. And then the other thing is like just going with the the total head scratcher one. Um, like why can't we be friends or something like that? Just uh, just uh, you know, or um, as or like a, to go back to Dolly Parton, like the Dolly Parton, I will always love you. Just like some, something that's just so weepy and and sad and not pump up oriented at all just to like make the make the pitcher think about it a little bit um brian l jumps in the chat to say james mccann's walk-up music sucks i don't know what it is <laughs> uh, there's a there are, i mean you gotta you gotta account for everybody having different tastes i don't know what james mccann's is i didn't know that pete alonzo i think he's used rush in the past i don't think he was using that earlier this season at least not when i was at the game um because i would have picked that one out um dean c is upset that i said that bad company is bad company is a bad song. Um, I also think they'd probably be bad company. Um, we have no one. Uh, uh, if anyone wants to join us on stage, you're welcome to join the queue. Uh, no one in the queue right now, but Evan G wants to know. Uh, Mets fans are growing increasingly frustrated with JD Davis, of course, John Smith as well. Uh, what are these two guys' values to the team if they show zero power? 
Uh, if they can't run into a home run once every 10 to 14 days, isn't it time to give Vientos a shot or look externally? It's not like these guys haven't had four-plus seasons to prove themselves. Tim, what do you think about that? Uh, I mean, yes, July is the time to look externally <laughs> if they're not hitting home runs or anything. You know, Tom, Tom Smith has gone almost a year without a home run. Uh, J.D. Davis has, uh, I don't know how many on the season, not, not many. It's, it's been, you know, outside of the Grand Slam uh, the other day, it, it's been a while for him, uh, for power. You know, you look at those two guys, since the start of June, their OPS is, is something like 766, where it was before Monday, uh, which is, you know, decent for a DH in this game. I think it'd be seventh best in, in baseball among DH production, where the idea of your DH being a guy who goes out, who rolls out of bed and has a 950 OPS, like Travis Hafner or whatever, uh, is not what it, it not what happens in, in Major League Baseball anymore. Uh, but it is it is clearly an area where the Mets can improve. And, and you know, as the, the question says, like, if those guys aren't giving you a whole lot offensively, and, and it's not just home runs, but, you know, this offense can use home runs. You know, Davis doesn't have a lot of defensive value, obviously. Smith's defensive value is muted on this team because he plays the position that the Alonzo plays. Uh, that, uh, you know, it, it's just they don't fit the roster as well as they would uh, on, on maybe some other teams. So I think, you know, we, we've talked about this is a spot where the Mets should be looking to upgrade. There's some different ways of doing that, uh, whether it's the trade market or whether it's through their own system with Francisco Alvarez or Mark Vientos. Vientos both, the, both of those guys are now in the futures game. Vientos was named as a replacement. Uh, I, I like the idea of Vientos in particular against left-handers because he's just mashed them his whole career and, it, and is really doing a, a number on them this year. I think last time I checked, it was like seven homers in, in you know, 80 plate appearances against lefties or something. He's uh, going to swing and miss a bit. He's going to strike out a lot. Uh, and the, the transition to the level might be difficult. But I think if you limit his, if you kind of give him a set role against left-handers, it has a better chance of being successful. Yeah, it is, uh, it is nine, currently nine home runs and 87 plate appearances against lefty, a 312, 368, 701 slash line. That's good. Uh, Will, have you have you formulated an opinion on on Mark Vientos yet? Because you're going to need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will say, like, just to jump on like what Tim was saying with just what you're getting out of a DH these days, it's absolutely right. Like, there aren't too many guys like that. But I, but I will say though that the, the slug that the Mets are getting from their DH position, I think it's something where around like 330. I think only last time I looked, I think it was just the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Oakland Athletics were worse. And that's not the type of company that um, a team like this should be in at any position, let alone the designated hitter. So absolutely, like this is, it, it's it's the time to, to address that. Um, on Vietos, no, I have plenty of opinions on Alvarez. Um, that's somebody that I wrote about. <laughs> I spent a lot of time writing about. Uh, Vientos, not as much. I just I just have not. Um, spent as many as much time having conversations about him um, uh, as far as the numbers go he he's the one and Tim has written about this a bunch that he's the more he's the person that like you you would probably go with um, to try out first uh, just because like you're you're you probably feel better about just his readiness um, and just the steps that he's taken um, just the, the gradual like he's been at AAA now um, He's put up the numbers, so you kind of feel better just about uh, not feeling like you're skipping a part at all with his development process. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I have a question, a follow-up question for Will. You did that that big Alvarez story on Monday. Like, what was the big, what was the biggest thing that you learned about him uh, during the process of that reporting? Because you talked to a whole bunch of people about him. The the joy factor really stuck out to me the most because I knew the guy could hit. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? When you look at his numbers, uh, it's not like I was watching too many of his minor league games before, say, the last month or so when I was plugged into a lot of at bats uh, recently, where I would where I would be streaming or just rewatching. Frankly, just for that story's purpose and just to get a better uh, idea of what the Mets have in their farm system, particularly at the top. And for me, like the thing that like you would not see, of course, is that joy factor where the guy just really loves to be there. And I feel like that's um, one of those soft skills that, that people in baseball talk about that are not things that you can measure that are not things that you could really put down uh, without seeing him play if you're a scout like you you have to like watch him and I'm not sure like how do you grade that and where do you put that I don't know um how much that matters in the grand scheme I don't know but I I do think that that part of his makeup will matter once he gets to New York because he has such high expectations placed on him um that really in any other part of the country like it's just it wouldn't really matter as much but for for here in New York you have to embrace that and you have to understand um, that that comes with the territory here and that like you are looked at in a certain way um, and you get labels attached to you and you have to perform. And for him to be able to sort of embrace that it, by all accounts, that's what really stood out to me over the course of the reporting because that's what's going to help him get through some tough times, um, some inevitable tough times. And he's already had those actually, like he, he has struggled at times and the ability to bounce out of those in, in the biggest ways possible um, with these incredible hot streaks. That also was something that was striking to me because um, that just tells you that, yes, he, he's going to go through it like everybody else, but to be able to do it and to uh, burst out of it in such a big way time and time again, like I said, it, it, it was pretty striking to, to see that pattern develop. Uh, well, he struggled a little bit in his first turn at AAA. It's very early, obviously, it's a tiny sample. But, like, I, I think if you talk to a lot of people in baseball, they'll say, like, 
that's a good thing for a prospect to to have a couple bad weeks because you need to get figure out what's going on and and learn. Like if you're just dominating every level and you never have a, have a, a bad week, you're going to go majors and have a bad week and you have no no skills for for accommodating that. So like you know obviously you'd rather Alvarez get up to Syracuse and immediately start mashing, but you know if you struggle for for a week or two or a month when you get to a new level, like you you do develop some skills in that. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when I, I talked to Tim Hires, who's the Rangers hitting coach, but was minor league hitting coordinator for the Red Sox back when they called up Xander Bogarts during a, a pennant chase. Uh, and he knew, you know, he, he had been in the system when, when Andrew Benintendi and Raphael Devers were there, and they also kind of were called up in similar circumstances. And I asked him kind of like what you're looking for from a minor, you know, a minor league prospect in that situation that makes you feel comfortable in calling them up to the big leagues. Uh, and the first thing he said was they've got to have enough time to have gone through slumps they've, got, they've had been able to go through rough patches and to get out of them because you don't want the first big one to be uh on independent race at the major league level uh and they have no idea what to do and it snowballs on them which is kind of what happened to Yohan Moncada when he was with the Red Sox uh, where he came up and struck out like nine straight at bats and they just didn't play him anymore uh so I thought that was interesting and, and Will's point about joy like the I've only seen Alvarez play uh during a minor league season once and that was in Brooklyn last last summer uh, and that, that's what stood out to me was before the game, just the way he goes through like the, the team drills, the infield practice. Like he was the guy at second base taking throws when they're doing double play stuff. You know, he, there was an infectious energy about him. Uh, and you're not used to seeing like the best prospect be that guy. That's, that's usually a guy who's an organization guy who's just kind of pulling through it. Uh, for Alvarez to be that guy, I thought was a really good sign. DNC has been waiting for a while, and I'm just going to warn him that if he is uh, coming on to defend bad company, he will he will have uh, find very little patience from me. Uh, Dean, what is up? Hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, Will, welcome. Thank you uh, for coming coming on. Uh, t- uh, Ted, I read your Tim. Sorry, sorry, Tim. Read you read your article yesterday about uh, James McCann. But the thing is, I'm 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 somewhat scrambling because I'm watching this Brave series with this team. And they, the clearly the biggest weaknesses of the team, the Braves are very good at third base. Riley, DH, Ozuna is better than any DH they have, and then of course Darno, who's better offensively than any catcher we have, and he was on the Mets and they gave him away for nothing. My question is, is like how aggressive are they going to be at the trade deadline? Because the team has given up so many prospects over the years now. And even last year with, like, giving up Pete Crow, I look back at that trade and think that it's horrible. I don't know what you guys think of that. But, you know, so I was wondering how aggressive they're going to be. Thanks. Yeah, I, I would not expect them – you know, I, I wrote about the, the McCann situation and kind of likened it to Francisco Lindor last year where it, it – you know, with Lindor, that opened the door to trade for Javi Baez. They weren't thinking of, of adding a guy quite like Baez, but the, the appeal of him being able to play short until Lindor came back was really strong. I thought maybe in this circumstance, the Mets would be looking mainly for a DH, but if that guy can catch until McCann comes back, that helps, and Wilson Contreras fits that bill. Uh, I don't, you know, I think it's likelier that they trade for Contreras than it was before McCann got hurt. I still don't think it's likely uh, because of what they gave up last year for Baez. Uh, you know, Pete Crow Armstrong is also going into the Futures game. He's, he's kind of gone from a fringe top 100 prospect last year when he was missing most of the season to now uh, a guy who's a pretty solid top 100, maybe even top 50 prospect in the game. And they've just, you know, the Mets, they live in a world where they've made all of these trades by now, and the, the Crow Armstrong is another one on top of that. So it's difficult for them to pull that trigger again for a rental and for a guy who 
you really have no interest in signing long term. You could have talked yourself into going after Baez in the offseason, and the Mets did to an extent. Uh, but Contreras, you're not going to do that because you've got Alvarez coming up. You've got McCann under contract. You've got Nito as a, a reasonable backup in your in your organization already. So uh, I don't think Contreras is the guy they're going to spend a lot of prospect capital on. Uh, I think you know maybe a, a different DH and. Because again, the, the need is DH, like you can go into various different positions on the field, whether it's uh, a first baseman like Josh Bell, whether it's an outfielder like Andrew Benatendi, for instance, he doesn't really solve the power issue. And I think there's probably more, um, th- there's a wider range of options. Like if you want a catcher, it's, it's Contreras, or it's maybe Sean Murphy from Oakland. And Murphy might cost even more than Contreras because of the team control, which again, not valuable to the Mets. So I, I think there's a wider range of guys you can go after at DH. Uh, that that would improve this team, uh, improve this roster, improve the lineup. Uh, so I think that's probably where they spend some capital. And then again, uh, in the bullpen, you know, whether it's it's one guy. Have we Ted? Have we have we ever talked about Andrew Chafin on this? Because that's a guy that that's kind of piqued my interest of late. I don't know if you've heard of. It. He's a left-handed reliever, um, but I think he might be a, a fit for this team. I think you know most objective observers will say that the 1999 National League Championship Series was the greatest baseball series ever played. Um, up until the the bottom of the 11th inning of Game Six. Do you remember the 1999 NLCS? You you grew you grew up in the area. You uh, are you old enough to remember that? I am. No, I am definitely Good. old enough. Okay. Um, yeah, actually, like the Athletic posted a tweet saying that like once upon a time uh, there was a young writer. And just for the record, I, I will want to say that I am still relatively young, Ted. So. Um, I do have a bone to pick with the athletic for that. Um, but I do remember the 99, um, playoff run. Uh, that was great. Uh, well, yeah, it it was a great time up until it ended for the Mets, of course. Um, but yeah, you know, you said something said very interesting because I was actually having a conversation with somebody, uh, before we recorded about, about just the differences between the team that I covered in the Brewers and now covering the Mets. And there are some major differences there. But one thing that the the person pointed out was the Dodgers and how they can still spend money, but yet have a good farm system or a great farm system, one with depth. And that was something that we were talking about, too, because I have was I have been looking at box scores pretty much every every day for the past month or so in preparing for this job across the, the Mets uh, farm system. And what I noticed is that these guys, not not a lot of guys have great numbers. <laughs> like, and if you look at some other teams, it's up and down the list of guys who like you've never heard of. That maybe they're just depth or organizational guys, or maybe they're people who are flamethrowers in Double A. But they have like these like high strikeout rates. They have um, things that just make your eyes or, or your eyebrows uh, rise, and the Mets just don't. And so I'm with you on that point. I think it's a very smart take. Um, and just one thing on like the the catcher DH situation, I think Tim was right with what he said about Oakland's catcher. With that's going to require a haul as well, and like you get into that weird situation where you have McCann under contract still, and um, you also have Alvarez coming up through the minors. You know, one guy who I, who I, who was uh, kind of interesting to me. Just maybe this is just bias based on the team that I was covering, but you know, Pedro Severino comes to my mind as somebody who could be expendable um, from there from their side of things, just because they they have three catchers now that they're carrying. And yes, he's, he's not great defensively, but he does have some power. And so I wonder if he could be a stopgap option, if at all, for the next few weeks uh, for, for the Mets, if that, if that is somebody that, that is of interest, but overall the, the catcher market is just, 
it's kind of like Contreras or bust. And, and like Tim suggested, it's just, I'm not sure if that's, you know, the long-term answer for you um, to, to give up the, to give up the farm for, for that, or to give up what you have in the farm for that after making the trades that you made last year. Yeah. And I think, you know, and as, as Tim has pointed out a, a few times, and I think uh of and, and Patrick Mooney at, at the athletic wrote about the cup uh, that the trade deadline from the Cubs perspective and mentioned it as well. It's like, it's kind of hard when you have a, a veteran, especially a pitching staff like the Mets. I mean, maybe it makes it actually a little easier in a catcher if it's Max Scherzer and he knows what he's doing, but it's always hard to switch your regular catcher mid-flight. Um, and what they do have in, in Nito and McCann is uh, really, really good defense. Like, a, and, and I'm not sure the extent to which that, that mitigates their complete lack of offensive production, but uh, Nito has just been, I mean, he, he won the game for them defensively a few nights ago by, by backpicking John Birdie off second base. And, uh, he's just been incredible defensively. Like very, I, I really enjoy watching him. Uh, and McCann has this, you know, incredible reputation for how well he handles the, the pitching staff. He's got a, a fine arm. He's a good framer as well. Um, I don't know. I, I think that like a guy like if for, for McCann's absence, I would say, like, yeah, a guy like Severino, someone like sort of a stopgap part-time player makes a lot of sense. It seems unlikely to me that they would they would try to swing a huge deal for a guy like Contreras when they're in the situation that they're in where it's not like Javi Baez where there's this possibility where, oh, there's a long-term fit here. You know Contreras would not be a long-term fit. It would be a pure rental. Uh, I can't. I feel like the easier way to operate the offense, the much easier way, it's going to be cheaper in terms of prospect capital uh, and and also a significant upgrade is what we talked about, which would be finding a, a DH, a guy who can play every day um, or most days, you know, either, you know, first base uh, filling in for Alonso or a corner outfield and, and most of the time in that designator spot because – uh, they just haven't gotten a lot from that position, and it's one where where you should be able to fill it pretty easily. I have a question for you, Will, which is that I read uh, you were a, a nighttime security guard at City Field. <laughs> I sure was. Yes, I can confirm that that's true. Yes. Oh, how how was it? Because I, I worked at uh, I worked I was a vendor at Shea, so we have that in mm-hmm. common. And then we were, we were trying to get into the game to get get paid to get into the Met Stadium. But uh, I did you get did you get to see any games, or is it just purely overnight? No, so I worked mostly games actually when I oh, was nice. eighteen. Yeah, when I was eighteen or nineteen years old, um, it was a great job. So my best friend, his father, it's actually a unionized thing over there. I'm not sure people know that or care, but uh, long story short, my my best friend's father is in it. Has been in it for a long time. When I was eighteen or so, I needed a job. Did that, and yeah, what's better than when you're that age or a little bit older, a little bit younger, whatever, to get into the game for free and to get paid for it. Um, to stand around, uh, <laughs> like that, that that was that was a great job. Uh, I I just stood around and I watched the game. Um, now I sit around and watch the game and get paid, uh, but I actually have to write too, um, so it, it's not the same in that sense. But uh, yeah, still getting paid to just uh, stare into stare into the field, uh, <laughs> just in a different way. Yeah, I, I as a vendor, I also stood around watching the game a lot. That is a that is not really what they're looking for out of their vendors. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that wasn't what they're looking for their security guards either. But hey, I mean, are are you actually going to to um to to do the job of a security of a security officer at at City Field? Uh, 
maybe if there's a fight or two. Uh, but that happens when there's like Phillies and Yankees games. Uh, but beyond that, it's pretty chill. Uh, what was worse than a? Uh, I mean, I, at least this is my experience, and and I, it was only one summer I vented, but uh, it was never more fraught than a. And that was when the subway series was still like a relatively new phenomenon, and the you know twenty five thousand Yankee fans descending on on a sold out Shea Stadium made for a nightmarish day as a vendor. <laughs> Yeah, no, the, the, for, for for me, um, it was the Phillies games, actually, because those would get like just, I mean, like, there were, there were like, there was some serious fistfights in those, and there they still are, I'm sure, but I mean, I remember like, separating people, having like, people's blood on my shirt, it was just nasty and gross. Yikes. Uh, yeah, it wasn't the best. Um, so those for me were like the, the most, uh, those are the memories that stand out as far as, yeah, I don't want to revisit that anytime soon. It's better probably what you're doing now, sitting in the – although I would say – and, and our, so I, now you've spent some time in the City Field press box. To me, it's like a little bit airport loungy. Like I could go for throwing the windows open a few more times, but uh, it's, a, it's probably a lot more comfortable than standing between a, a drunk Phillies fan and a drunk Mets fan. <laughs> Slightly, yes. <laughs> I wonder if we have Tim Britton back. Tim, are you with us? Can can you hear me? I can. Did you did you hear? I just finished. I just finished my exposition on the ninety nine NLCS. You, you guys got all that, right? Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, good. It good, ended glad. poorly. <laughs> no, I, I, I did want to make one point. You guys talking about the, the catcher position? You know, you look at teams that have been really good the last couple of years, uh, like the twenty eighteen Red Sox had basically nothing offensively from their catchers. Uh, that was Sandy Leone and Christian Vasquez and a little bit of Blake Swihart. I mean, had like a 530 OPS from their catchers over the course of the entire season. They won 108 games in the World Series. The Astros have been to the World Series three times in the last five years. Uh, most of that time, Martin Maldonado has been their catcher. Again, not a guy who's giving you much uh, offensively. So uh, I think really, like, like you guys said, it's it's what happens around that position in the lineup. The, the Mets have the really good defensive tandem uh, between McCann and Nito. Uh, someone in the chat pointing out that, I, you know, I pointed out that the catcher ERA difference is, is relatively eye-opening. It, it's a, a stat I don't love leaning on too much, but every starter has been better with McCann mm-hmm. uh, versus Nito. And part of that could be the timing of it that, you know, McCann was catching primarily in April when maybe the weather was colder and uh, hitters well, and were the not starters went speed. on that incredible run in April. Like, I don't think you can credit McCann with that, right? That was just like one of those things. The Mets starters were doing, were pitching unbelievable. It didn't matter who was back there. Right. But he, he's also a guy who, like, like you said, Ted, has a long reputation of developing really good rapports with his starting pitchers. Uh, and so, I th- you know, I think the Mets can get away with what they have at catcher as long as they supplement elsewhere on the roster, specifically uh, at designated hitter. Well, I am excited that we have supplemented our coverage roster here. Will, uh, thank you for, for joining us. I imagine we'll be speaking more in the in the coming weeks and months. Oh, definitely. Um, well put, Ted. Happy to supplement the coverage along with Tim. I think we should provide Mets readers of The Athletic with great to- great content, for which should be a very, very uh, compelling rest of the summer. Uh, we will be back with more great podcast content, as always, later in the week. Until then, Will, Tim, peace out.